You're listening to episode five of Making Peace with Emotions, the podcast where I talk about the insights I learned from a very good therapist who helped me to recover from my emotional problems. It's been a tumultuous month here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. George Floyd was asphyxiated under the knee of police officer Derek Chauvin, while three other officers watched and did not intervene. The unarmed and handcuffed George Floyd begged for mercy until the life left his body. But Derek Chauvin would show him no mercy. George was black, and Derek was white. For many, this killing has felt all too familiar— It even symbolizes how a large segment of society feels about the relationship between police and citizen, and between black people in general and white people in general. Large protests sprang up in my town, and across the country, and even internationally, in response to this killing, and in response to power structures in general, whose members have less accountability and more support than the citizens who are subject to them. And, as has been the case with some other highly charged protests in the past, some people use these protests as an opportunity to smash windows, burn buildings and cars, and confiscate goods from stores. Maybe these actions were initiated by agent provocateurs, intending to discredit the protests and give law enforcement a justification to respond with force. Or maybe the destruction was carried out by people who have urgent needs to be heard and understood, but don't see any other way of communicating that will get the attention of those who represent the structures that make it hard for them to get their needs met. Whatever the motivations might have been, the fires were started. Goods were taken from stores. The third precinct of the Minneapolis Police Department was burned down. The governor called in the National Guard, and for several days, city life involved armored vehicles, soldiers with guns, Black Hawk helicopters overhead, protests at the site of George Floyd's death at the governor's mansion, on the freeway, in various neighborhoods and business districts, the sound of tear gas bombs deploying, curfews at night, cars without license plates whizzing through neighborhoods after curfew, Emergency statements warning of sophisticated urban warfare happening in the streets. Bottles filled with gasoline found hidden in the bushes. Neighborhood watches. And stories, sometimes true and sometimes false, of menacing people terrorizing strangers across the city. My partner Liz and I had bags packed and camping gear ready to go, in case we needed to flee our house. We stayed up all night watching our street and listening to the police scanner. One night, we were asked to help keep watch on the rooftop of a friend's condo building. Multiple buildings in the neighborhood formed a network and kept in communication via the Signal app. Arson attempts were able to be prevented at two of the buildings in our network. We watched from the rooftop as the National Guard searched the neighborhood with armored vehicles and foot soldiers with guns. The sirens of fire trucks, ambulances, and police cars blared past our building and in the distance for much of the night. At any given moment, at least two helicopters with searchlights could be heard and seen in the sky. A drone swooped over our heads as silent as an owl. If it hadn't been for our network looking out for the buildings in the neighborhood, residential buildings may well have burned. It was a scary week or so. 
And when fear is involved, those of us with emotional problems are likely to worry about the fear itself. In this episode, I'm going to make sense of some of the fear reactions people might have to a crisis situation. If you live in my town, maybe you have similar stories from that first week after George Floyd was killed. Maybe you have similar stories from a different town. Maybe you live in one of the many places in the world where this kind of turmoil is common. If you've experienced civic turmoil recently, and you're also someone with an emotional problem, there are several responses you might have had to your situation. One response is, you might not have thought about your anxiety, depression, or emotions at all. People with emotional problems are often surprised by how well they manage a crisis. They expect, since they perceive themselves as sensitive and fragile on an ordinary day, that in a crisis situation, they'll have an especially hard time coping. The belief is that the more stressful the situation is, the more dysfunctional they'll become. But that's often not the case, according to my former therapist, the late Amr Bharata, whose model for emotional health is the subject of this podcast. Amr said it's very common for clients to report that during a crisis, their anxiety and depression turned out not to be a problem for them. They think, why do I panic at the grocery store but become a hero when my apartment building's on fire? I remember having a conversation about this with Amr after I'd been in a car accident. I'd experienced the extremes of feeling alarmed when I was suddenly rear-ended at a stop site so forcefully that my trunk was smushed like an accordion, totaling my car. All in an instant, I'd heard the hideous crunch of car collision, felt my body cracked like a whip against the steering wheel, seen the loose items in my car flung against the dashboard. I started screaming before I'd even registered what had happened. I asked aloud to myself, Am I okay? and wiggled every muscle I had, terrified I'd find that some part of me no longer worked. I was shaken up, but during the accident and my time talking to the cops and the paramedics afterward, I wasn't particularly worried that the anxiety and panic were going to be harmful to me. As someone who had spent years concerned that maybe the anxiety I felt when I'd watch a movie in the theater was unhealthy for me, I was surprised to feel so harmonious with my anxiety in this crisis situation. Amr had heard similar stories many times before. There's a good reason why people with anxiety problems can sometimes feel less traumatized by life-and-death situations than by lower-stakes situations. And it gets at the heart of emotional problems and their recovery. When you're dealing with an emergency situation, there's no question that your panic and anxiety make sense. And so you are less likely to see your emotions as meaningless and out of place, or to focus on them as something that needs your intervention. It's not hard to see the meaning and usefulness of anxiety when you're fleeing a tsunami. Your emotions are immediately experienced as natural. It likely doesn't occur to you to monitor your emotions in a crisis. You're only dealing with the situation at hand, and letting your emotions inform you about what's meaningful to you in the situation. After a crisis situation, It's more common for people with emotional problems to process their feelings about the crisis in a more invalidating way. But what could be more natural than feeling anxious when reflecting on a crisis? This is the challenge for people with emotional problems. We're worried that too much anxiety is bad for us. So we try to interfere with the anxiety we feel by telling ourselves it doesn't make sense, which leads to increased anxiety. 
a more helpful way to process our emotions after a crisis, would be to go easy on ourselves for having the emotions we do. We can nurture ourselves, give ourselves a break, see the sense that anxiety makes, and let the emotions last as long as they need to. We can try to be kind to ourselves, and try to be understanding with ourselves when we have trouble being kind to ourselves. In our conversation, Amr told stories about an adjacent phenomenon in which clients are surprised to find that they are able to handle situations rather gracefully when they take a risk and do something they want to do but are terrified of doing. And after doing the feared activity, they feel empowered, proud of themselves for making progress. This happens a lot with people who are afraid of flying on planes and decide to go ahead and fly and allow themselves to feel anxious on the plane. It's not uncommon for people in this situation to feel less anxious than they expected while on the plane. They're expecting to feel anxious and making space for themselves to feel the emotions. They're seeing the emotions as acceptable, as normal, as making sense. In other words, they have low expectations. And so they do just fine on the plane. It's the plane trip home that Amr advised his clients to watch out for. Here's one of those frustrating parts of recovering from emotional problems that perplexes and devastates clients and seems ironic until you understand emotional processing better. Clients who are surprised to find that they manage just fine on a plane trip to their desired destination often are equally surprised to find that they have disheartening panic episodes on their return flight. Why would this happen? Remember how I said they feel empowered and proud of themselves after having less trouble than they expected on the first flight. The way they talk to themselves about these positive feelings could set them up for a troubled return flight. Feeling empowered and proud of oneself are natural, normal, and valid emotions, and cause for celebration. What exactly are we celebrating, though? A person who has suffered for a long time from an emotional problem and now has a positive, enjoyable experience doing something they've been afraid to do is likely to celebrate the fact that they did not feel anxiety and to tell themselves that now they have finally conquered their fears. But anxiety itself is helpful, as all emotions are, and trying to conquer anxiety in the sense of getting rid of it is the very definition of an anxiety problem. They're saying to themselves, Yay, I'm no longer someone who feels anxiety on planes. Flying on a plane isn't that scary after all. So now they have high expectations for the return flight. They expect not to be anxious this time. And when they feel scared, they are devastated, perceiving themselves to be failures. Someone with an emotional problem can't be blamed for this return to their problem after getting a taste of recovery. The belief system that fosters emotional problems is complex, automatic, and is not easily amenable to change. There's good reason to go easy on yourself for falling back into old patterns. That's what recovery looks like. Making some progress, then regressing some. On this path of recovery, it helps to expect to be anxious on your outgoing flight and your return flight. Not just because you have an emotional problem, which takes time to recover from, but also because anxiety is normal. People without emotional problems also feel anxious on planes. And people without emotional problems 
also feel overwhelmed and anxious in all crisis situations. Another response you may have had to a tumultuous situation, if you have an emotional problem, is to suffer a setback or relapse. Maybe in the middle of an emergency, you do scrutinize your emotions more than necessary, hoping to control and eliminate them. Maybe you do go really hard on yourself for feeling anxious and tell yourself this level of stress is going to destroy your mental health. This reaction is understandable too. This style of processing your emotions, which characterizes emotional problems, comes from a belief system that is deeply ingrained and culturally ubiquitous. It's what you're used to. It's what comes easily. In the middle of a crisis, when you're using a lot of mental energy to address the situation at hand, the self-nurturing, self-accepting, non-perfectionistic style of processing your emotions can become harder to access, all the more so if you're relatively new to the path of recovery. In an emergency, all you can do is muddle through the situation as best you can. If you find yourself worried about your emotional state during the crisis, so be it. You can suspend recovering from your emotional problem until the crisis is over. Emotional problems don't need to be addressed at every moment. Go ahead and have your problem. In the aftermath of the crisis, when things slow down, it's helpful to remember that life is difficult and that it's not your fault that life is difficult. It may be the case that 10 things urgently need your attention, but you are only able to attend to eight of them. That's what life is like even on a non-crisis day. And those of us with emotional problems often have trouble appreciating that fact. We have this belief that life can be done perfectly, that it is possible to avoid suffering, that there's always a good option to be found, and that if you don't see a good option, that's because you're doing something wrong. These are the kinds of perfectionistic ideas that are likely to occur to people with emotional problems in the aftermath of a crisis. Because following a catastrophe, there will always be more things that need to be addressed than there are people and resources to address them. Life involves hard choices, sometimes really hard ones. And when you think about it, it makes sense to let yourself off the hook for this painful truth about life. Speaking of painful truths and hard choices, my partner Liz and I are going through a foreclosure. The pandemic situation has complicated matters in ways that work for us and against us. The way it's worked in our favor is that there is a moratorium for the moment on new foreclosures. And so that buys us some time. In the meantime, we have set up a GoFundMe page for us. You can find a link to the GoFundMe page on my website, that's www.marshallbolin.com. M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L-B-O-L-I-N is how you spell my name. On my website, you can also reach out to me with any questions and comments you have about this podcast or anything else. You can also find out more about the coaching I do with individual clients and with couples, and you can learn more about Amr Bharata. A lot of people need help in various ways right now. So after you've donated to people who need food and medical help and legal representation and justice, if you have a few bucks left over for me and Liz, we'd really appreciate it. 
Your donation will also help me keep providing this podcast for free. I'm going to read chapter 5 now from Amr Bharata's book, Making Peace with Anxiety and Depression. If you'd like to order a copy of the book, you can get it on lulu.com. That's L-U-L-U. Just search for Amr's name, A-M-R-B-A-R-R-A-D-A, and you'll see the book. You can get it in print or ebook format. Chapter 5. Getting Started. Mindfulness and the Initial Stages of Recovery In the initial stages of recovery, it is important that you start appreciating that your emotional problems are not mysterious diseases, but are conditions that have developed over a period of time due to the ways you habitually manage your thoughts and emotions. At this stage, it is difficult for you to see this point. As people start to develop emotional problems, they are almost universally unaware of the dynamics that led to their emotional problems, often believing that these dynamics are highly abnormal, mysterious, and eccentric. They see nothing wrong with their coping style, or with how they process their thoughts, feelings, and bodily sensations. A main goal of the recovery process is to become so aware of the dynamics of your emotional problem that you'll be able to say to yourself such things as, I know exactly why I panic, or my depression makes a great deal of sense. As a consequence, you will rarely be alarmed by your thoughts and feelings. Awareness of the way you manage your internal processes will help you identify what you are doing and not doing that gets you into trouble with your thoughts and emotions. And will start to give you a sense that these are problems you can recover from. The good news is that if you yourself have actively, though subconsciously, participated in developing your problems, then it follows that your problems are not the result of some mysterious abnormalities or eccentricities, and that you have the internal resources to get over these problems. You actually possess the knowledge on how to recover from your emotional problems, even though that knowledge right now may not yet be available to your conscious awareness. You only need to be shown the way toward recovery. An initial step to this awareness, or state of mindfulness, is to become familiar with, one, what it is that troubles you, and two, how you're processing it, i.e. your coping style. It's important to develop an awareness of both of these. The first is important because emotionally troubled people lose sight of the content of their emotional problems. They can't make sense of what troubles them. They'll say, I've no idea why I'm so depressed, or I can't figure out why I'm anxious all the time, or my feelings of depression come out of nowhere. They say this even though the content, the meaning of their emotional problem, may be staring them in the face. It's especially important to become aware of how you manage your thoughts and emotions, and your life in general. The content of your emotional problems is not itself problematic. It is your specific style of self-management that has led to your emotional problems. As you proceed in your attempts to recover, you will become progressively more aware of how harmful the excessive ATOC and the excessive BTOC have been, and continue to be, and appreciate how they have been the decisive factors in the development of your emotional problems. The way you persistently shame yourself are unaccepting of yourself, and are constantly trying to control your thoughts and emotions, 
follow a very complicated and elaborate set of predictable rules. Also very consistent are the beliefs that get you to swing from one extreme to another, trying very hard to function perfectly, becoming overwhelmed, followed by giving up, or putting your life on hold, then to muster extreme motivation to return to the insistence on functioning perfectly again, and then giving up again, in an endless cycle of frustration. The dictates of this belief system are so consistent with people who have emotional problems that they are almost invariable. The mental route towards developing an emotional problem often begins with a highly aversive set of circumstances in which you experience certain negative thoughts and feelings, responding to them negatively, finding them unacceptable, and trying very hard to eliminate them. This whole process often works on the subconscious level. The harder you apply the ATOC to the negative thoughts and emotions, the more troublesome and problematic they become. The self-shaming, the self-intolerance, and the strong desire to eliminate unwanted thoughts and emotions keeps getting progressively stronger, which only strengthens the thoughts and emotions, which in turn calls for more ATOC, until a vicious cycle develops. Both the emotions and the ATOC keep becoming progressively more chronic and autonomous. You then live in a state of perpetual obsessive preoccupation with the unwanted thoughts and emotions, trying harder and harder to eliminate them, failing at every attempt, but not seeing anything wrong with that approach. As the process of recovery proceeds, you will appreciate that the excessive ATOC is not only a response to your emotional problem, but a major factor in creating it. It is equally important to become aware of how the excessive B-talk has caused problems, leading to extensive avoidances of thoughts, emotions, and regular activities, all of which have led to major dysfunction. First Session A typical first session with an emotionally troubled person reveals the points that have been made so far. The following is a typical dialogue. Therapist Okay, so let's get acquainted. I'll give you some feedback later in the session, but right now I mainly want to know what brings you here and how you think I might help you. Client. Nothing is going well in my life. Things have become very complicated. I'm constantly scared. I feel nervous all the time. I can't get a good night's sleep. Whatever I do and wherever I go, I become paralyzed with fear. Have you seen a therapist about this? I've been going to psychologists for 20 years, ever since I was 18. I feel better for a while, but then I relapse and get worse than before. How do you explain that? I'm just not trying hard enough. You mean you're lazy and unmotivated? I guess. I just can't find the way to get better. You mean you keep on trying even though you have failed so many times? Yeah. It doesn't sound like a lack of motivation is the problem. I want desperately to get well. What does getting well mean to you? I want to stop feeling so miserable. What does not feeling miserable include? I want to stop being so anxious all the time and depressed and unable to go places on my own. I want to feel normal again. When you think of being normal, what comes to mind? It means getting rid of all this anxiety and depression and feeling happy and stopping all these thoughts that keep hounding me all the time and I want to go back to work. If you can achieve all this, you'd consider yourself normal. I guess. 
I know that where I'm at these days isn't normal. The client then describes his emotional problems in some detail. Listening to you makes me think you are convinced that you're abnormal and that you shame yourself for that. I shame myself all the time. And you see all this anxiety and depression as highly unacceptable. It's just terrible. And so you want to get rid of the anxiety and depression. Yes. And you want me to help you get rid of these feelings. Yes. Can you? I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I can't. And I don't think anyone can. And yet you've been trying so hard. So it's hopeless. It's hopeless to keep on trying to do things that can't be done, such as getting rid of thoughts and feelings. Everybody who comes to see me wants to do it, and has put a lot of effort into it, but I have yet to meet someone who has succeeded. So you're no different from anyone else who has these problems. There's such a strong belief that negative thoughts and feelings are bad for people, and that if they put their mind to it, they can control and eliminate negative thoughts and feelings. But all I see is frustrated people who shame themselves for not succeeding. So what can I do? It seems to me that if you've tried some things for many years and haven't succeeded, then perhaps it's time to question the workability of that agenda. It just hasn't served you well. What else is there? Would you settle for something like this? You learn new ways of dealing with yourself, your thoughts and emotions, and other things as well, so that gradually your thoughts and emotions won't present problems. You won't get rid of anything. You won't be ecstatically happy all the time or live a perfect life. But your emotions won't be problems in the sense that they won't interfere significantly with your everyday functioning. And you are likely to experience a great deal of serenity. Would you settle for something like that? Sounds great. When do we start? A new direction. The initial phase of therapy may involve little more than describing and validating the emotional content of the person's problem, and clarifying the basic principles of how the problem works and what kind of recovery one should expect. Emotionally troubled people, especially those who have tried various kinds of therapies that have not worked for them, are often excited at trying a new approach that makes the following points to them, some of which have already been mentioned. There is nothing terribly wrong with you. You are not abnormal. In fact, you are too normal, in the sense that you do not allow yourself any imperfections. Shaming yourself for being abnormal is a huge part of the problem. Saying that you're not abnormal doesn't mean you don't have a problem, because you do, and it's a big problem that's difficult to get over. Your problems are not mysterious. There is no weird illness or pathology. You can make sense of your emotional problems in simple, uncomplicated ways. You are not eccentric, even though your problems may appear strange to yourself and to others. In fact, you try too hard to eliminate anything about you that you perceive as unusual, and won't allow yourself some eccentricity. Your negative thoughts and emotions are not the problem. How you process them has led to severe problems. Your emotional difficulties have resulted from being unreasonably negative about yourself, and from the fact that you are constantly at war with yourself. You are very negative about negative processes, which leads to a persistent cycle of negativity. You also live in a culture that is very negative about negativity, which reinforces your own negativity, and your negative attitude toward negativity. 
instead of fighting negative thoughts and emotions, you might find it a lot more helpful to be accepting of them and to appreciate their positive benefits in everyday living. A big problem arises from your unwillingness to experience natural arousal and discomfort. Therefore, you become uncomfortable about discomfort, afraid of fear, depressed about feeling depressed, anxious about feeling depressed, depressed about feeling anxious, and so on. You may be prone to rejecting natural physical discomforts, such as physical pain, nervousness, gastrointestinal distress, headaches, and shortness of breath. The more you reject natural processes, the more troubled you become by them, which exacerbates these processes, which makes you more troubled by them, and so on. Instead of being occasionally bothered, you become persistently troubled. Your life might become a lot more comfortable if you learn to be accepting of discomfort. You try very hard to control and eliminate things that can't be eliminated, such as thoughts and feelings and bodily processes, and shouldn't be eliminated. They have a high degree of autonomy and are very useful. The harder you try to manipulate these processes, the more troubled you become by them. Thoughts and emotions, no matter what their content may be, would not trouble you if you were permissive of them. Receptivity to the experience of negative thoughts and emotions and physical sensations and pain is a central focus of recovery. Control and elimination are part of a perfectionistic approach that you are likely to use to deal with yourself, especially things about yourself that you are ashamed of. You likely tell yourself that by eliminating your negative thoughts and emotions, you will also eliminate the shame you feel about them and about yourself. Shame is a very aversive emotion to you, and you try very hard to avoid it. But your vigorous attempts to eliminate shame only cause more shame. Accepting shame as normal and useful can be a significant factor in your recovery. Your perfectionism is very complex. You are inclined to try hard to raise expectations so that you can succeed very well at anything you do. You live your life performatively, trying hard to avert, quote, failure, discomfort, and negative processes in general. The higher your expectations, the worse the emotional problems become because you have to deal with persistent disappointments. Learning how to cope with life's difficulties and with suffering in general can be a lot more effective if you develop beliefs about the effectiveness of sensible expectations while learning to stay away from unreasonable and unattainable goals. You probably try to get over your emotional problems quickly since you think the quicker you proceed, the sooner you'll get there. You may strongly believe in the motto, the more the better. But that way of thinking actually impedes your efforts to recover. Taking a slow and sensible approach is not appealing to you since you may have been socialized into thinking that only losers approach problems that way. However, your recovery can be a lot more effective if approached slowly, in a gradual step-by-step -step approach. You are on a mission to change yourself in a major way, and you keep telling yourself that major changes can happen only with a lot of effort. Living effortfully on a persistent basis only wears you out. It would help a great deal if you lived your life more casually, in a more easygoing way, with less effort and less insistence on living your life performatively. 
your all-or-nothing thinking has led to many problems. Significant dysfunction can happen when you abide by the rule, if I can't do it perfectly, I won't do it at all. It leads you to procrastinate on a regular basis and to extensively avoid uncomfortable situations, which only leads to major dysfunction. Challenging the old beliefs As an emotionally troubled person, you are strongly inclined to avoid your thoughts and feelings, which includes avoiding anything that keeps you in touch with these processes. There's a powerful impetus to keep thoughts that bother you out of your awareness, with the expectation that by doing so you will bring them under control. The results are almost always disappointing. This is not necessarily limited to negative thoughts, although these are the ones that are usually the main focus of attention at the beginning of therapy. You can even shun positive thoughts and feelings, for you could perceive these as being as uncomfortable and uncontrollable as the negative thoughts. Often, all the emotions can be seen as troublemakers, for they are perceived as leading to uncertainty and loss of control, and as being unstable, so that if the doors are open to them, they will run amok and cause all kinds of havoc. That is one reason why the distinction between negative and positive has been avoided in this book. Emotionally troubled people have trouble with all kinds of thoughts and feelings, regardless of whether they are negative or positive. It is interesting that, at the beginning of therapy, anxious and depressed people do not report having too many episodes of depressed feelings or intense anxiety. They often report that they don't feel much of anything. Depressed people often look like they're emotionally and mentally numb, and may even report that they wish they could feel anything, even negative emotions. There's a difference between feeling depressed and being depressed and anxious people are the same. They have intense fears of becoming anxious, but they control their feelings so much that many of them don't experience much actual anxiety. They are mainly riddled with obsessive thoughts of becoming anxious, so that even people with panic disorder will often report that they have stopped having panic attacks a long time ago, and have structured their lives in such a manner that they exert maximum efforts to avert any possibility of having panic attacks. In that respect, many emotionally troubled people become so persistent in avoiding stress that the basic functions of everyday living, such as work and socializing, are discontinued. The following are examples of excessive B-talk and the regular A-talk that you need to come up with. Excessive B-talk. Since I don't want to be uncomfortable in certain situations, I'll avoid them. Regular A-talk. Avoiding discomfort on a regular basis is not good for me. It's a significant part of my problem. I need to be active and get on with my life in meaningful ways. Excessive B-talk. I get anxious during challenging situations, so I will avoid challenges. Regular A-talk. Avoiding challenges on a regular basis will lead to stagnation, and I will become dysfunctional. Engaging in situations that are challenging is an integral part of a healthy lifestyle. Instead of stagnating, I need to start getting back to living a more vital and dynamic lifestyle. Excessive B-talk. My emotional problem is unmanageable, so I'm going to give up trying to get well. Regular A-talk. Giving up on my problem will just make me more miserable. I need to do whatever needs to be done to get well. I might need professional help. Excessive B-talk. 
Whenever I put a lot of effort to get something done, I fail. So what's the use of trying? I'll just give up. Regular ATOC. Extreme passivity can be very damaging. The opposite of always putting a lot of effort into getting things done is to put only as much effort as I need to put. It's important to be motivated to get things done, but not excessively motivated. It's important to put in effort, but not excessively. As the regular A talk and regular B talk become more and more available, acceptable, and believable, by means of repeated exposure to and practicing them in the privacy of your daily thoughts, and while engaging in challenging activities, you will progressively experience a great deal of serenity, energy, and vitality in your everyday life. Thanks for listening, everyone. Next week, I'll read Chapter 6, Self-Fulfilling Prophecies. Feel free to reach out to me if there are topics you'd like me to discuss on future episodes. To learn more about me and Amr Bharata, you can go to www.marshallbolin.com. Please consider donating to my GoFundMe campaign, which will possibly help me and Liz to keep our house. You can find the link to that GoFundMe campaign on the homepage of my website. Until next time, peace.